Let's open our Bibles to Titus, the first chapter. Titus chapter 1. Tonight we'll consider verses 1 through 4 as we continue in the introduction to this letter. Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. They read like this, Paul, a bondservant of God and, of, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Again, the, the, the Apostle Paul is the author of this letter. This letter is written late in his life, not many years before he dies. It's written to a man by the name of Titus, who, who along with Timothy had been with Paul for many years, was a very faithful servant. Titus was a quite a different personality from Timothy, showing you that God uses all different types of personalities. It's not just one particular uh, personality type that God will use in ministry. Uh, t- t- Timothy was probably more soft-spoken. Titus was more like a drill sergeant, and particularly in Corinth when there were serious problems. Is it real hot in here? I see a lot of you fanning yourself. Would some, uh, John, would you go take care of that? It's... Uh, now, the temperature says 67, so, um, but we'll, Stephanie's happy, but we'll, we'll go ahead and we'll get some circulation. I think it's not the temperature, I think it's probably the circulation. Okay, we'll get it, we'll get it. All right. Titus and Timothy are, are two entirely different personalities. You're going to see a little different flavor here. Paul doesn't exhort Titus to exactly the same things that he exhorts Timothy. And Paul starts off by introducing himself. He doesn't have to do that so much to Titus. Titus knows full well who Paul is. But this is a common way of introducing oneself in the ancient world. He, he begins, Paul, a bondservant of God, a slave of God, if you will. Most uh, today would not like to take that designation, but it depends. Uh, and slavery all depends upon who the master is. If you've got a master like God, who wouldn't want to be a slave? So Paul, a bondservant of God, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The gift of apostleship was one that um, was extant in the first century, but we don't have that gift anymore today. The, the gift of apostleship was given in order to carry the church through that foundational period. And when that foundational period had ended, the gift of apostleship was no longer necessary. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. We studied last time that the, the apostle Paul was used of God. We came, we came up, up on this passage anyway. The, the apostle Paul was used of God in order to bring those who were elect to salvation. The, the term elect or to the, for the faith of the chosen is the term uh, uh, eclectos, it's a common description of Israel in the Old Testament, and it continues to be used of believers in the New Testament. It's used elsewhere in the pastoral epistles of Christians in Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, and of angels. We talk of elect angels, angels who witness Timothy's activities in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 21. The relationship between the concept of election, or God's choosing us in eternity past, and faith, the faith that we exercise in time, has been a theological battleground for centuries and has divided churches and has divided friends. I don't intend to enter that war zone tonight because Paul here just makes the simple assertion that his apostleship has at least as part of its purpose uh, 
to assist the elect in coming to faith in Christ. That's what he says here, no more, no less. I want you to remember as, a, as an overlay to that whole discussion, though, as one, as part of that discussion is, is one that will never settle because you have finite issues being mixed with the in, infinite issues. You've got the finite issue of faith that occurs in time. You've got an infinite issue of an infinite personal God who elected us in eternity past. And theologians have been struggling with the concept of how to, how to reconcile the idea that man is truly free with the, also the idea that God is sovereign. And, and the, the pendulum tends to swing one way or the other, both ways. And you have the whole Calvinistic and Arminian debate. The, the reality is that Calvin wasn't Calvinistic, not as Calvinistic as many people are today. The other reality is Arminius wasn't as Arminian as many people are today. In fact, I have to correct something. I, this was a, an opportunity to do this. I wasn't going to do it until it came up in the passage. In the past, I've told you that Arminius believed that, that individuals could act outside the sovereignty of God and that that was one of the things that separated him from Calvin. Well, I learned that from a Calvinist. And as I should have known, because this has happened to me too many times in the past, Arminius never said that. In fact, Arminius was very much like Calvin in understanding that none of us can act outside of the sovereignty of God. So I do have to retract that statement and apologize to you. I, never, I didn't check it out myself. I took other people's word for that. But having now read what Arminius himself said, um, he did not believe that you could act outside the sovereignty of God. You wouldn't be a very good theologian if you did. And Arminius was a solid theologian, just like Calvin was as well. We may not agree with everything he said. But much of the time, he's misquoted just like Calvin is. The point is, we don't, we don't want to start choosing sites saying, I'm Calvinistic, I'm Arminian. We need, to, we need to look at biblical theology and not get wrapped up with baggage from theological systems. And both of those theological systems have baggage. If you overemphasize the sovereignty of God and take away the free will of man, ultimately you can do nothing but, ultimately you can do nothing but make God the author of sin. If man is not free, then God's the author of sin. And some Calvinists admit that. On the other hand, if you make man totally free to where he could act outside the sovereignty of God, then God's not really sovereign and God's not God. So you have some things that are in front of us. The idea that man has, has the responsibility to exercise faith. And then you have some things that are behind the veil, as Burkauer, one of the great Calvinists of the past, said. There are some things that are behind the veil. Some things that God chose not to, to, uh, to reveal the specifics of how some things work together. And part of the idea of God sovereignly choosing an eternity past is behind the veil, and we probably should leave it that way. Um, one thing we do need to realize, though, and the, the overlay that I'm talking about, is that God desires, watch, God desires all men to be saved. To deny that is to deny, to deny the Scriptures, to deny the clear teaching of the Scriptures. We studied that in First Timothy chapter 2. Now, some might say, well, it doesn't mean all, all men doesn't mean all men there. God desires all categories of men, some from all categories of men to be saved. Well, that's very poor exegesis. It doesn't work, and it's uh, embarrassing, quite frankly. The passage is, is talking about all men, not all categories of men. And if God desires all men to be saved, that is a reality. Then Paul, you, God was used, uh, God used Paul rather to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to men and women so that they would use their volition, their free will, and accept Jesus Christ, or they could reject him. That's what, that's what Paul's part of this whole equation was. Paul's part of the equation was to be faithful and to bring the gospel to those who had not heard it. I was walking into a, a college the other day with a, a student who was uh, 
extremely, uh, extremely Calvinistic. And he was telling me that their church had cut off all funding for all missions. And the idea was that if, if God is sovereign, he doesn't need us spending our money on missions. You know, God's, you know, God's going to make them believe. In fact, if you, go, if you take it far enough that mankind is regenerated and then they believe, then you might can make a case for that. But that is not the proper application of God's sovereignty. That's a, that's a very inappropriate application. And in their defense, most mission activity over the course of the last 300 years was initiated by Calvinists. So you put that in your teapot and boil it. All right. Now, now that we've um, stirred that pot just a little bit, let me, let me move on to the next and, and one of the most important phrases in the book. Yeah, I know, it's in the, I know it's in the first book, I know it's in the introduction, but it's one of the most important phrases in the book. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is in accordance with godliness. Or we could almost, uh, we should understand this as, which leads to godliness. Paul knew nothing of knowing the word of God and not doing something with it. That, that wasn't even on his radar. Uh, to, to just to fill up pages full of notes and take them home and fold them and put them in your Bible and then and then bring them out the next time you come to church and set those on the coffee table. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder why we take notes if we never take a look at them during the week. But Paul knew nothing of knowing without doing. And right at, right from the beginning here, he says the knowledge of the truth which is in accordance to godliness or which leads to godliness or or which is according to godliness. Now, godliness here is the type of behavior that God would expect of the believer. That's what godliness means. It doesn't mean we're becoming gods or anything like that at all. It means the type of behavior that God expects of the believer. Now, doesn't that make sense? We studied on Sunday that we worship a transcendent God. He is out there. He is outside of his creation. But we also worship a God who's imminent, that interacts with his creation. And one of the greatest interactions God ever had with his creation was to reveal himself to his creation. Otherwise, we would be at a total loss. We, we might could reason that God was there by virtue of natural revelation with his creation. We learned that we should be able to do that for Romans 1.18, that, that we can do that unless we suppress the knowledge of the truth. But he would be so totally other than us, we would be left to observe creation, to observe nature, to see what God was like. And we'd have a very dim picture, wouldn't we? If we observed creation, we could see that God was powerful, and we could see that he was smart, incredibly smart. But we'd know nothing of how to have a relationship with him, would we? No, we wouldn't. We would really know very little about the love of God if, we just, if all that we had was nature. In fact, we might think the opposite, because there's so much cruelty, even in the animal kingdom. Remember watching that Mooch of Omaha show back when you were kids? I mean, this, this, the same line would just go rip that gazelle to pieces, and it, and it, it was... We watched it. I don't know why, but it, because it was cruel and brutal, and, but, but we watched it. If that's all you saw, you wouldn't get the idea that God was love. You'd get the idea that whoever created all this was kind of cruel. It wasn't until we had special revelation, that we, that they, and this is a grace gift on God's part, that he decided in his, in his own sovereignty and his free will to reveal himself to us. And he did it in two ways. First, with the Scriptures. It began with Moses in the book of Genesis. The Holy Spirit spoke through Moses and wrote the first five books of the Bible. Through that man, Moses. Through his servant, Moses. And then it continued on through the prophets and all through the Old Testament. And then in the fullness of time, there was a second kind of 
special revelation. Very important kind, and that was Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ came, he said, I revealed the Father to mankind. In fact, in John chapter 17, we'll study in a few weeks, maybe a couple months down the road in our Sunday morning service. Jesus says, it is finished. I have finished the work that you sent me to do. Now, that's John chapter 17, and if you've read ahead, the crucifixion doesn't come until John chapter 19. What, what does he mean, I have finished the work that you've sent me to do? He hadn't been to the cross yet. Well, the thing that he had finished, there was two aspects of his coming. One was to reveal the Father to mankind. The other was to pay for the sins of the world. He had finished that first aspect of his work. So, therefore, if you could see Jesus, you could see God. Now, nobody can see deity, but you can see the humanity of Christ. If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is telling you. You want to know how Jesus feels about people, people being unkind to other people? Look at Jesus Christ. You want, to, you want to know what God feels about people cheating other people in business? Look at Jesus. How does, how does God feel about children? Look at Jesus Christ. How does God feel about you? Look at Jesus Christ. So that's special revelation as well. Then we have the, 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 the apostles write the New Testament. We have that kind of special revelation. Now, do you think God went to all that trouble so we could just learn it? Or so that we might interact with it? And adjust ourselves to it. He didn't reveal himself, so he said, hey, that's cool. And then go on about our way. He revealed himself to us so that we might worship him. And that's why Dwight Pentecost calls worship the response to revelation. If all we had was nature, our response would be very limited, wouldn't it? We wouldn't know what we were responding to. But since he's revealed himself to us, and we have all this data now about him, we can respond to that data in worship. And part of the overall scope of worship is godliness, or behaving in a way that's consistent with what he revealed. I hope that makes sense. It ought to. Otherwise, the revelation is a waste of time. It's It's a crass intellectual exercise on God's part, and he doesn't work that way. If he revealed himself, he intends for us to do something with it. I know you've heard that a hundred times, but you're probably going to hear it a hundred more because I'm not going to let you forget it. We've got to consistently bring ourselves face to face with that mirror that shows us the mirror of the Word of God. And and we look at ourselves in the mirror of the Word of God and see we don't match up. And it's part of our job as believers in the Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through us to match up to what God says we ought to be. And that's not going to happen in, in, in our own ingenuity. It's got to happen through the Spirit working through us, transforming us. The, the, scriptures, the scriptures don't say anything at all about God tweaking us. Did you, ever read, did you ever read about God tweaking us? We're really pretty good already. He just needs to, to saw some of the rough edges. No. No, he's, he's, got to take, he's got to take that old you and destroy it to bring it down to, its, to bring you down to your knees and then transform you. That's a lot different than tweaking you. Some of us in our arrogance think we, we don't need a lot of change. You know, I'm a pretty nice guy already. I just need a little tweaking. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed that it's the people who were probably living the most degenerate lives that when they come to Christ, they oftentimes become the most humble. They become the most fervent servants of the Lord. They're, they're some of the most intense students. Because they know from whence they came. They don't have any illusions at all about their own righteousness. It's, it's those who were pretty good. Weren't too bad. They're the ones that have a harder time coming to Christ. Because they, they don't feel like they have as far to come. 
Oh, if they would only realize they had just as far as the one who is the degenerate. Remember in our study of Romans, there were three categories of persons that needed a savior: the immoral person, the moral person, and the Jew, and how the moral person thought that they were closer to God than the immoral person. And Paul says, no, you're all equally condemned. Because you condemn the immoral person for doing what they do, but you do the same things. You do the same things. Now, wasn't that term, didn't that terminology blow you away last year, year, year and a half or so when we studied that? It should have blown you away. To tell the moral person, you do the same things that the degenerate does? He wasn't talking about the same specific sins, but sin is sin to God. You know, we, we look at adultery as, as though it's the unpardonable sin. And it is a terrible sin. It, it, it ruins trust. It's a, it's a horrible thing. But in terms of God and facing his holiness, facing that mirror of God's holiness... The, the, the maligning, the, the viciousness, the, the slander, the stealing, lust, those things are equally as offensive to God's holiness. Then they may not carry the same penalty that, that adultery did or murder does. But they're all equally uh, evil in God's eyes. So there is a reason for Paul presenting truth. That's not just to satisfy our curiosity or so that we might have interesting conversation around dinner tables. It's so that we might change and allow the Holy Spirit to, be, to transform us. Now tonight, do you think you need a transformation? Now maybe you've already had that, and I, and I hope you have, and, and, and we're all being transformed. But I hope we recognize the necessity of it. I don't care how good and sweet and nice you are. In fact, sometimes it's the nicest people that have the hardest time with the whole transformation process. I hope you're not one of those kind. In verse 2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie promised long ages ago. All that has been said so far, Paul's service and apostleship in the interest of the faith of God's elect and of their acknowledgement of the truth which accords to godliness or which leads to godliness rests on the fact that we know how it all turns out. We, we don't have a doubt. God has, taken, God has removed that doubt for us. So that way we, we can approach our transfer, after our transformation, we're going to be transferred at some point in time. We're all going to be transferred, and we can approach that with a certain confident expectation. And that's why I've reminded you before, and I'm going to remind you again now, the Greek word elpis, the Greek word for hope, is not the same type of hope that we have in English. In English, are the, are the Texans going to beat the Giants this week? I hope so. But, yeah, but you're laugh because, because it's not that likely that it's going to happen. You know, but will the sun come up tomorrow morning? I hope so. Well, that's, a, that's more of a confident expectation. Yeah. And it's a confident expectation based on previous performance. God has been faithful all of our lives. God has been faithful for the entirety of creation. He has promised us that we will have eternal life. And because of that promise, we can have hope. Okay, now let's be frank. If someone promises you something... If you have five different people promise you something, the, 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 the probabilities are that one or two of those people, you're not going to think much of the promise. They may be well-meaning. They may really intend to do what it was that they promised, but they just always seem to mess stuff up. You know people like that? They, they just, they, they're always going to be late for the party, late, late for the prom. They forgot their wallet. You know, they would love to buy, but they really did forget their wallet. You know, not the people that just say, I mean, they really did. I mean, they intended to do something, but they just couldn't, they just didn't get it done. And then there's maybe one or two, maybe three of the people that, that promised you something that you can just put it in the bank. I mean, it's, it's, it's done. 
They promised it, and it's done. You don't have to look behind you and see if they did it. You don't even have to make a phone call and see if they accomplished it. Because when they said they're going to do something, because of the integrity, because of their work ethic, because of their organizational skills, whatever it is, you know it's going to get done. Well, if you understand that, then you understand why we can have confidence in God. Because God is faithful. The text says he can't lie. He cannot tell a falsehood. And on top of that, he has omnipotence. He has, he has the omnipotent ability to get whatever was done that he promised in the first place. Now, that's a pretty strong promise. God promised Abraham several things. He promised him land, seed, and blessing. Now, some people today that say that, well, God has transferred that promise to the church. It's not going to be fulfilled in Abraham. It's not going to be fulfilled with the Jew. It's going to be promised. It's, it, it, God's going to take what was promised to Abraham, and he's going to give it to the church. Now, if he does that, he didn't fulfill his promise. Let me illustrate. If I, if I say to, to Judge Taft, at the end of this service tonight, I'm going to give you a $5 bill. No conditions. I'm going to give you a $5 bill. And when the service is finished, I come to Judge Taft and I say, Tim, change my mind. I'm not going to give you the $5 bill. I'm going to give it to Jerry Davis. Now, everybody other than Jerry Davis doesn't get a vote in this, but because he'd be happy he got the $5 bill. But for the rest of you, would you, think, would you say that I kept my promise? Now, think harder. I gave the money to Jerry. I, I'm out five bucks. So did I keep my promise? No, of course not, because they didn't give it to the person I promised it to. And there weren't any conditions on that. You see? So no, I didn't keep my promise. Even though I gave the $5, I promised it to Tim. Let's do this now. Let's say I said, Tim, I'm going to give you $5 at the end of this service, provided you can translate the first four verses of Titus from English into Greek. Okay? And then I come up at the end of the service, I come up at the end of the service, and I look down at his paper, and, and he doesn't have it translated. He did the first three verses, but he couldn't figure out verse number four. You see? So I say, well, Tim, you didn't fulfill the requirements. I'm not going to give you the $5. I'm going to grace. I'm going to give it to somebody else. Now, then did I lose my integrity? No, there's no integrity loss there because he didn't fulfill the requirement. So when God promised something to Abraham, if, if God promised something to Abraham and gave it to the church, he wouldn't, he wouldn't fulfill this verse about not lying. And that's what that's the whole point of Romans chapters 9 through 11, if you'll recall. A lot of Jews, a lot of people teach that, even today. And Romans 9 through 11 says, no, no, no. What was promised to Abraham is going to be given to Abraham. Because God is honorable. He has integrity. He doesn't just change his mind in the middle of the stream like that. I don't know if you realize, sitting here tonight, how important that is. How critical that is to your comfort tonight. Because God has promised you a lot of things. He promised you, if you trust Jesus Christ you will receive eternal life, and you will go to heaven. Now, the reason you can have comfort in that is because God is not going to take what was promised to Tim and give it to Jerry, because he has integrity. I hope you see it. If, if God would break his word to Abraham, how do you know he's not going to break his word to you? I mean, he's sovereign, right? I mean, some people emphasize that to, to the exclusion of all his other characteristics. He has the right to do whatever he wants to do with his creation. Why can't he just 
switch the, switch the recipient of the gift. You tell me, why can't he do that? Well, I'll tell you. Because, because he, <laughs> you were supposed to answer that. That was the interactive part. Because he has integrity. Because he's more than sovereignty. He's integrity. He's truth. So when it says God who cannot lie, we're talking about a characteristic of God called his veracity. Remember, remember right before the crucifixion, Jesus tells, well, Thomas, but all the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. So Jesus Christ not only tells the truth, he is the truth. He can't do anything but that. So this is what we have to look forward to. He promised something. He's not going to lie. He's omnipotent, and he can follow through with it. And just like he's going to follow through with the Abrahamic covenant and give the blessings to Abraham, he promised to Abraham. He's going to give you eternal life because he promised it to you. And you don't have to worry about him changing his mind. Now, the, now the, the beauty of this is, if I had told Judge Taft, I'm going to give you $5, it doesn't matter what you do, at the end of the service, I'm going to give you $5. And let's say Judge Taft decided to, to have some fun with that, and he stood up in the middle of the service and, and hooped and hollered and did a backwards dance and did one of these moon things, you know. And then at the end of the service, I said, I'm not going to give it to you. He said, well, why? Because you did that, moon, that moonwalk thing. <laughs> I would propose to you that I still lost my integrity because I didn't say anything about his obedience. I, I didn't say he had to be good in order to get it. I said, I'm going to give it to him. Now, maybe I'm a fool for doing that. <laughs> Not that God's a fool for giving it to Abraham, but I'm saying, but, but that's a promise is a promise. So you may, you may think, well, listen, I know he promised eternal life, but I have disappointed him in a real big way. Doesn't matter. Yeah, doesn't matter. He's, oh, he's promised it. We can be restored to a temporal fellowship, but we cannot lose it if it's an unconditional promise. Now, salvation is not an unconditional promise. There was a condition to receive it, but then once it's received, it is unconditionally ma- maintained by him, not by us. Okay. And the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised ages ago. But at the proper time, God does everything at the proper time. You talk about a master of timing. That's God. At, at, the, at the proper time manifested even his word and the proclamation which, with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. The second reason that the Christian's hope is secure, the first, of course, being the integrity of God, the second reason that the Christian's hope is secure is not only that it was promised by God, but that now it has been revealed by God in the proclamation of the gospel. It was promised, and it's been revealed to us. If if I had said, and forgive me for using your name so much on this tape, Tim, but it, it won't hurt if it gets out in the next week or so. Unopposed, so it doesn't, so it doesn't help. Let's say in my mind I promised him that $5 bill, but I never told him about it. it, it doesn't do a, there's, not, there's not a lot of expectation in him. In fact, if I was to tell you right now that somebody tonight, under your chair, don't look right now. <laughs> there is a $100 bill taped underneath one of the chairs tonight. And, the, and as soon as the service is over, just for real, as soon as the service is over, you can look and you can... Uh, you can, you'll pick your five hundred dollar. You'll pick your hundred dollar bill. Uh, it's, it's Cindy's sitting on right now, but but uh, <laughs> but uh, but, uh, but I mean I mean I'm sovereign. I get to choose anyway. 
But, but if I didn't tell you, so if I did say something like that, you'd all have an expectation. You know, you'd probably be feeling around, you'd be stretching. And feel. The reason I bring that up, there was a church down in Friendswood that did that. They put a $100 bill each week, they put a $100 bill under the seat, and, you, and then they had a raffle, you could, there was a car ticket under this, there was car keys of this to bring people in. I don't think that church lasted. <laughs> as far as I know, they went out of business. But the point is, there's, there's a second reason. God promised it, and then he also told you about the promise. You wouldn't have a lot of expectation. You couldn't have the hope if you didn't know about the promise. So that's what he means at the proper time manifested even his word. And the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God, our Savior. There is some discussion about who who is uh, the referent there to uh, God, our Savior. Uh, In Titus, the God, our Savior, is most, most likely referring to Jesus Christ doesn't have to, and in fact, we, we spoke a little bit on Sunday nights, uh, some on Sunday morning too, about the, the functional unity of Father and Son. There, there is a sense in which the Father is our Savior. I mean, he's the author of the plan. He's the one that sent the Son. Uh, Jesus is our Savior as well, but we'll see later on in, in Titus, uh, well, exactly, just the next verse in Titus, that Jesus is specifically called the Savior. And then he tells us who the letter is to. In modern times, we would write a letter like this, Dear Bob, then we would have the, we may have the date up here. Dear Bob, then we'd have the body of the letter, and then we'd have signed Bruce. And and an ancient epistle wasn't written that way. An ancient epistle would have been written um, from Bruce, To Bob, and then you might have a date, and then it would, then the body of the letter would take place, and then there wouldn't, there would, you wouldn't sign your name again at the end. Sometimes you would, but but you would have some sort of uh, benediction toward the end of the letter. That's an ancient letter. So in Paul's epistles, follow that pattern perfectly. This is not just the New Testament epistles I'm talking about. This is just letters of the ancient world, and there's there's lots of them that they found. And so that's what he does here. He says, he's already said who he was, and now he's telling us to whom he's writing. And he's writing to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace to you. Titus is called Paul's child because it was the Apostle Paul who apparently led him to faith in Jesus Christ. So when Paul, in the first verse, talks about his apostolic mission being to give the gospel to the elect. Uh, Titus is, is someone who was the recipient of that gospel r- right from the beginning. Uh, Paul calls Timothy his child, too. You know, there's, there's genetic offspring, and then there's spiritual offspring as well. You, you can be someone's, you might have heard the term, someone is, this is my spiritual father. That's, that may sound a little weird to you a little bit, but, but all they mean is this is the person that led me to the Lord. And it's, and it's a, a phrase of respect. You're appreciative for that. Um, and that's what he's doing here. My true child in a common faith. And then he uses two greetings that, that mix the Greek culture and the Hebrew culture. The first greeting is grace. Paul's the apostle of grace. He probably understood grace better than anybody of his time. That's, what's, that's one of the things we love about Paul. If we look back through the scriptures and see the, the people that were certainly great in scripture, you see they also really understood grace. Moses, 
a great man. He understood grace. David, a man after God's own heart. Boy, did he understand grace. Peter, the New Testament David, as far as I'm concerned. But Peter, uh, he understood grace. Paul understands grace. But it's, uh, what he's doing is he's, he's, taking, he's taking a common term of greeting in the ancient world, in the ancient Greek world, and he's converting it to a Christian greeting. This is what I mean. In the ancient world, if you were to run into your friend at the Agora or the marketplace, uh, something like that, you may, you may say something like this. Kyre opilo. Uh, the word kyre would be the, the closest thing they had to hello or greetings. Uh, the opilo would be my friend. Kyre opilo. The word for grace in Greek is charis. You hear a similarity there? Kyre, charis. It's almost as if Paul has changed the kyre to kairos opilo. It's, it's a subtle change, but Paul has taken a common greeting and then he's Christianized it. And he's bringing the, the Greek thought into that. If, you were to run, if he was to run into one of his rabbi buddies, one of his friends that he knew from the synagogue in Jerusalem, he may, he may approach them and say, Shalom, which would be translated peace. What he's done here is he's, and in most of his letters, he does this. He brings those two greetings together. He brings the, the Gentile greeting along with the Jewish greeting together and says, grace and peace. Paul, in all of his letters, realizes that the, the Gentiles are, are part of the body of Christ just like the Jews are in, in the church. And so he is, is, he's sensitive to those to whom he writes, and he brings both those, both those cultures in. From God the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Savior. A true knowledge of God and of his promises, revealed in the gospel, and a hearty confidence in him, in his redemptive work, leads to Christ centered love throughout all of Paul's writings the bottom line the foundation is going to be love the goal of all of his instruction the outcome that he wanted of all of his instruction is love and that's what we'll see in in Titus but not just in Titus I hope you've seen that in all of Paul's epistles so the introduction, which I think it was, it was productive for us to spend a couple nights on. Paul, a bondservant of God, he's a slave of God, and he was proud of it. Proud in a good way. And an apostle of Jesus Christ, the apostolic gift was necessary in the first century. It's not necessary now. That's why we don't have apostles today. For the faith of the chosen of, the, of, the, for the faith of, the chosen of God, his apostleship was used in order for him to bring the gospel to people. Of the truth and of the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, there is a, a proper response to the revelation we have from God. Ultimately, that proper response is called worship. But it leads to behavior that is consistent with what God would have us do. And the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Reason number one, we can have confidence. Reason number two, it's been revealed to us, but at the proper time, manifested even in his word. In the proclamation with which I have been entrusted, according to the commandment of God our Savior. 
the recipient of the letter now, to Titus, different person, different personality from Timothy, but still used of God in a very important way. My true child in a common faith, Paul was apparently the one who led Titus to salvation. And it's, and it's likely that Titus was from Syrian Antioch. I, didn't, I don't know if I mentioned that before, but Titus is probably from Syrian Antioch, the place where Paul sets out from his uh, missionary journeys. Grace and peace from God our Father, or from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Well, end of introduction, next week we'll go back over, we'll revisit the idea of the qualifications of elders. Since we spent so much time on that in our study of Timothy, we, we, will, we will summarize it, uh, and I'll refer back to some previous lessons, uh, but we do need to summarize it again. We need to keep ever before us the, the idea that the form of church government, that a church settles on. Watch. The form of church government that a church settles on is never as important as the integrity of the people that occupy the positions of leadership. And there is a prescribed behavior for those who occupy positions of leadership in a church, which goes even beyond that which is uh, expected of every believer. So, I mean, every believer has a very high standard. I mean, godliness. But if we can look at it this way, the, the, the one who is, is in a position of visible leadership has a higher standard than that yet. We'll see that next week.